We're continuing in Genesis 2 today. We'll be going through chapter 2, verse 4 through 25, but I'm just going to read parts of it today. So beginning in verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed a man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out of Eden and watered the garden. From there it was divided and became the source of four rivers. Skipping down to verse 15. The Lord God took man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and felt no shame. This is the word of God. Sherlock Holmes, Encyclopedia Brown. We got some others. Where are we going with this? Nancy Drew. Yeah, detectives. Yeah, there we go. The Hardy Boys. Scooby-Doo, right? One of the best. Yeah. Naming some of the best detectives uh, known to man. I remember when I was a kid uh, going to the school library and checking out my Hardy Boys books or my Nancy Drew books and just getting lost in the mysteries that they spent time solving. I also remember as a kid, um, we lived in Oklahoma, but we would visit uh, in the Alabama area. Uh, my uncle Alan, I would stay the night at his house. Um, and he had something we never had growing up. Uh, no, no, it's all right, parents. But we didn't have cable TV, okay? Uh, so my Uncle Alan had cable TV, and I loved it because they had Scooby-Doo reruns all night. And I remember just, I would stay on the couch and fall asleep to watching Scooby-Doo reruns. You know, you had the unmasking. Uh, it was always the least obvious character, which became the most obvious character because you knew it was the least obvious character every time, right? Um, so uh, just watching these mysteries being solved. And some mysteries... Um, like the ones in the books and shows I just mentioned, they are meant to be solved. And by the end of it, you kind of have this neat package and this tidy bow on top, and you could go back and rewatch it, and you see how everything's going to work together, and at the end of it, you're kind of just satisfied. It's like a mystery that's meant to be solved. However, other mysteries are not meant to be tidied up and fit into a box. Other mysteries, like the fact that we're floating on this uh, giant ball in space uh, and we're not being flung off because there's such a thing called gravity. 
Uh, maybe uh, the fact I was talking with my son about this the other day, it's, it's wild that our bodies just operate with no external power source. Like we just go to sleep and we wake up and we just have this energy that's created because of the way we're created. And we've studied those things. We can try to dissect them and think about them. But at the end of the day, like we really can't fully grasp if you spend time thinking about those mysteries, um, what they really mean. They're a mystery for a reason. In Genesis chapter two, we get a glimpse into the beginnings of one of the greatest mysteries that has ever existed. And it's that of the relationship between a man and a woman, specifically within the context of a marriage covenant. Um, People have tried to explore it from a scientific perspective. We've tried to explore it from a creative arts perspective. Books have been written, movies have been produced, plays have been acted out, but there is still something mysterious after all these years about a man and a woman, two completely separate entities, somehow becoming one flesh through the union of marriage. And what's wild is like there's another layer to this. Because as great as this mystery is that we see recorded for us in Genesis chapter 2, it is only a shadow of something even more mysterious and mind-blowing than that. And like any good suspenseful book or movie, you'll have to wait until the end of our time together to see what I'm talking about. Some of you know. So good morning again, church. Um, like Sarah Beth said, well, I don't know if she did say, but my name is Joel. Um, I'm one of the pastors and elders here at New Eden, and it's just a joy to gather with you all. I love hearing you guys sing um, as we come in scattered throughout our week and just coming together to continue worshiping um, through song um, and prayer and readings and things like that. And so it's good to see your faces and just rejoice together with you guys. Um, today, we are diving back into our Genesis series. I'm thankful for Kevin last week um, filling in for us um, and preaching for us from Mark. It was sweet for me to just receive um, last week and be a part of our, our congregation. But today we're back in Genesis. We're in chapter two. Um, you just heard portions of it read, but we're going to be in chapter two, verse four, um, and then kind of work our way through the end of the chapter, which is verse 25. There's this new narrative that's related to the creation story that's beginning. Um, chapter breaks, they kind of missed it on this one. Um, the heading, though, probably in your CSB Bible or ESV, probably most of your headings, if you have that start, um, either after chapter three, some of them put it after chapter four, um, but it seems to be this heading. Um, quickly, by way of review and reminder, um, I feel like I'm saying this a lot, um, and I will as we're in the beginning of Genesis, but we need to remember that Genesis is written to a specific people in a specific cultural context, okay? This does not mean that the scriptures do not transcend that world, and it doesn't mean that they're not impactful or authoritative for us in our cultural context, but it does mean that we'd have to receive it as the original author intended it to be received. Otherwise, what we do is we place ourselves as the authority and our interpretation instead of the text itself and allow it to be the authority over our lives. So remember, we can't ask Genesis to answer modern questions um, and impose that on the narrative, all right? Let's remember that. Um, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time. You can go back to week one in the introduction if you wanna hear more about that. Remember, first and foremost, the story of Genesis is seeking to inform a people about their purpose and identity. It is not trying to, first and foremost, give a scientific or historic account of the origin of humanity. So let's, again, remember that as we work our way through today's text. Um, by way of review, chapter one of Genesis, um, on through chapter two, verse three, um, we saw God create all things. 
And the primary work he's doing, remember he's bringing order from chaos. He's given things that were once senseless purpose and value. That's what he's doing. He's preparing a dwelling place, a temple, if you will, as I argued for a couple weeks ago, um, for he and humanity to dwell together. And so we get this big, like 30,000 foot snapshot of that in chapter one. It ended with the creations of humans. And this command for them to be fruitful and multiply, to join God, to partner with them in his creating work that is ultimately a work of rest, right? We remember this eternal Sabbath where you don't see an end to the seventh day. It is this eternal Sabbath that we're meant to join in with God on, this eternal jubilee. And so if Genesis chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse three is that creation narrative, then we need to keep that in mind as we enter into Genesis chapter two, verses four through 25, okay? So let me give you a little bit of a roadmap on how we're gonna approach this text. I'm gonna give a little bit of background and context for a narrative today. So we're gonna start there. And then we're just gonna work our way through the story. And we're gonna see four different gifts that God gives to humanity from our text today. And then we're gonna see how it is still relevant for us in thousands of years later and how Christ fulfills all of this. So um, let's start by reading how our text begins in verse four through seven. Um, Stephanie didn't read this portion, but I'm gonna read it for us right here. Uh, Genesis chapter two, verse four through seven out of the CSB. We'll have the text on the screen as well. These are the records of the heavens and the earth or the genealogies, some translations might say, or the generations concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land. And no plants of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim, had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist, or a spring, some translations say, would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground. He formed the Adam out of the dust from the Adam and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man, or the Adam, became a living being. So if you're tracking, especially if you're trying to track this as a historical narrative, you're going to have some issues. There's going to be some conflicts here. Clearly, we're getting some other kind of creation story in this chapter. If you're trying to follow it perfectly chronological or interpret it perfectly literal, there are going to be some issues with this. But remember, the goal is literary faithfulness, not just being rigidly literal, right? When we say God is a rock, We don't envision God as a literal rock. We envision him as a fortress. So let's give space in there for that. Um, We were just told that humanity was created in the last chapter, and now we're told that there's no man to work the ground. What's what's going on here? Um, You also look at chronological. In this one, uh, in the first account, there's plants and stuff formed first, and then men. Here, there is no plant to work on the ground. So remember, the Hebrew authors are not first and foremost concerned with the historical chronological account. They're concerned with teaching us things about God and ourselves. It is less physical and more metaphysical. It doesn't mean it's not real and not tangible and not physical, but it's something bigger than that. One clue we get is we see the language, these are the records of the heavens and earth, um, or the generations. What is generated out of the heavens and the earth? This is going to come up 10 different times in the book of Genesis. It's called a toledot, toledot formula. Um, if someone really speaks Hebrew, they would make fun of the way I say that. But um, that's what it's called. And it occurs 10 times, and it's intentionally meant to move us along in the story. Every other time, though, it doesn't refer to the heavens and the earth. It refers to people. 
That's why you hear genealogies or what generates from Adam. Well, you see the line of Seth and then you see what comes from Ishmael, what comes from Isaac, right? So we're getting this kind of uh, story from the creation narrative, this generations that's moving us forward in the story. So chapter one, verse uh, one through chapter two, verse three seem to serve as a summary of all creation. And then chapter two, verse four, we're getting a closer look at what's going on specifically in the forming of humans. There's something more to tell us than just what we learned in chapter one about humans and their relationship with God, okay? So a couple different views on this. If you don't care about this stuff, if you're like satisfied, just check out, check back in in about two minutes. Um, but if, if this is interesting to you, um, some believe that chapter two is a synoptic view uh, of the creation of man and woman. So synoptic, like the synoptic gospels, it's telling the story from two different angles, right? Um, and so um, that might be what's going on. It's retelling the same story of day six of creation, uh, maybe combining day six and day three, and there might be some truth there. Um, another view is the se sequential view. So this is a sequel. Um, this would say that the creation of man and woman in chapter one is the general filling of the earth with population. Now, some of us don't like that, but Genesis 1 never says it was just one man and one woman. Um, it says man and woman generally. So there is room for this view. Um, it also seems to solve some of the issues with Cain later. He like goes out and gets married and builds this whole city. And you're like, where do these people come from? Right? So there might be space for that view in that um, Adam and Eve are created alongside this as the prototypical or the archetype um, of humanity. And so what is true of Adam and Eve is true of all mankind. And so we're getting kind of a, a glimpse and a snapshot, and they're supposed to be priests to the world, spreading God's glory throughout all of creation, right? So that's one view. Um, not really important where you land, and that might, you know, like, I don't want to get into all the details, um, however you think chapter two meshes with chapter one, there's room for this conversation outside of the Sunday gathering, and we can talk about it. But we do understand that it's clearly zooming into the formation of this one man and this one woman. And it's meant to be, like we need to clearly understand they are the archetypes of humanity. That is pretty clear, whatever your view is. What is true of Adam and Eve is actually true of all of humanity. That's why Paul can say, um, as we are all in Adam. Right, and so there. So, so that's why this is this story is relevant for us today. You are meant to see yourself in the story of Adam and Eve. They're not just these random two people over here that don't relate to us today. So that's just a little bit of groundwork. Um, now that we've done that, whatever maybe you have some hiccups and that's okay. Maybe some tension. You can go um, wrestle with that later. Let's try to just immerse ourselves in the story and go through the narrative. Let the story speak for itself. Just let it inform us. Let's sit underneath the authority of the text and see what we can learn about the truths that are found within. So right away in the story, I mentioned I'm going to talk about four gifts that God gives to humanity. The first one he gives to humanity is an abundant provision. This may seem a bit obvious, but so often we jump from Genesis 2 to Genesis chapter 3 and overlook this provision that God gives to humanity in our text. Um, the story does have prohibitions, and we're going to see those more closely next week and a little bit this week, um, but it starts with an abundant provision, and we need to understand this. Um, we just read through this, so I'm not going to reread it, but we read of a relationship. We see relationship in this provision. God has this with human. Um, in the first uh, chapter, God was referred to as Elohim, the generic term for God. Here we start to hear Yahweh God. Yahweh Elohim is referred to the Lord God. This is the personal name of God. This is getting personal now that we're zooming in to this relationship. And, and what does God do? He forms, he fashions from the dust 
And what does he do? He breathes into human the breath of life. This is intimate. There's something different about the creation of humanity that does not apply to the rest of the creation, including animals. God also forms, we'll see if you heard the text, uh, that God forms animals from the dust, but he does not breathe into them his, his breath of life, his image, his likeness. And the idea here is not to get caught up with whether it was he literally formed from the dust. Um, if that's hard for you to grasp, like the Psalms and Job, uh, plenty of metaphors about all of us being formed from dust and returning to dust, right? So the point there is to understand, though, that we're formed from dust, we come from the earth, but there's something different. The word Adam in Hebrew simply means man, and it comes from the word in Hebrew that means earth. The point is this, all humans are simply dust except for the fact that God himself has breathed his breath into you and formed you in his image. So these humans are relationally formed and, and given that provision, but not only that, they are given the provision of sustenance. We see the two main staples for human existence, food and water, given to the humans. Verses eight through 13, we read of a garden created in this land called Eden. So Eden's like the bigger picture within the whole creation. And then the garden, the word Eden simply means desire. And in that garden, we read that God gives an abundance of trees that are pleasing in appearance and good for food. Like this is a joyous thing. Like it's not like you just partake in this food and you're like, well, it's just like, yes, it is fuel for your body, but it's also a joy to eat. It's good to look at. There's also water this obvious life source. It's why by rivers, especially um, in agricultural societies, it's very important to be there because life is associated with the rivers. The word translated mist is a difficult one, um, but most likely means spring. I think the NIV translates it that way, and I think they got it right on that um, because it makes sense because uh, right after that, you see these four rivers that go out from the place of Eden, right? And so What's going on here? If you try to map those out uh, geographically, you're going to struggle with some things and you try to like find out where Eden was. Maybe we can go find it. Like, that's not the point. Again, it's like literally the four rivers are going out to like the entire known world at the time. It's like this idea that the provision of God starts with his presence, with humanity, and that is meant to flow to the whole of the world. It's why when you hear be fruitful and multiply, it makes sense that the rivers are going out and that life-giving source is meant to go to the entire world. It's helping us understand the potential that God is giving to humans. He's giving them this incredible dwelling place, gifting them with everything they need for life and flourishing, setting them up with incredible potential to partner with him and seeing this, this place of glory flood the entire earth. So first he gives to humans an abundant provision. And secondly, he gives to them a global commission. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man or the human and placed him, this word can also be translated rested him, you might see some Sabbath overtones there, in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it or work it and keep it. I touched on this a couple weeks ago um, when we were in the last chapter, uh, but this language of work and keep is the same exact language that is associated with priests working in the temple of God as worship, as they would serve and guard in the temple. So Genesis 1 kind of gives us this ideal picture of the entire world being the cosmos, like the, 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 the cosmic temple of God. And then here, it seems to be this kind of uh, snapshot of this more isolated space, but with the potential 
of God partnering with humans to spread this glory and this union to the ends of the earth as they partner with God in procreation, in their vocation, and in adoration. Chapter one, remember, they were told to be fruitful and multiply. We're, we're riffing on this now. Um, later, we see the language of God's glory covering the whole earth. This is what they were told to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with the glory of God. All nations, tribes, tongues. Like if we jump ahead, you're gonna see prophecies about that. That's what Genesis one and two is setting us up for. So often we read that be fruitful and multiply as only procreation. That is a piece of it. Like procreation is a piece of that. Have kids, raise them in the image of God. Adam and Eve were meant to have children for the glory of God as a part of spreading his glory, but it wasn't just limited to that. That's why you see language not only of procreation, but of vocation. They are told to work and to keep as worship. They're putting their hands to the soil. They, they are work. This is pre-fall, right? Work. You, we're going to work in the new creation, believe it or not. Now, it's not going to have thorns and thistles. That comes later because of the fall. It's going to all be redeemed. It's all going to be glorious and beautiful. But this has to do with vocation. God gives to humanity. Each of you sitting here, I don't care what you think about yourself or how much you demean yourself, you have incredible potential to partner with God in stewarding things for his glory, including your vocation. And I think that's important for us to consider. Tim Keller's done a lot of work on this. That's very helpful. Like to process through, what am I good at? What am I created to do? What gives life? And sometimes you just need to go make money to help survive. And you might need to do that for a season, but also processing like how, how do even what I do, the little things, how is this like bringing order to chaos? I had to work, I worked at a warehouse uh, for a while and it was a job that was kind of like mindless, which is hard for me if my mind's not engaged. It's hard if my mind is, I guess everything's difficult for me. My brain goes everywhere. But um, I'm doing this physical labor and I'm like literally like packaging these nuts and bolts to take to these people. And I'm like, I don't love the job. It's just one of those jobs I'm doing to make money and to be stable, to provide for my family. I'm doing it. And then I'm learning about this idea of vocation. And I'm like, wait, I'm, I'm actually partnering with God because I've got this like endless like wall of nuts and bolts. And then I've got this business over here that needs the specific amount where we've got to weigh out particularly the specific amount of these few nuts and bolts. And I got to take them here and put them on this truck and take them to here to give them something that's now useful. If they were to walk in my warehouse, they'd be like, I don't know where they're like, It would have been ridiculous. But I gave them something that was bringing order from chaos. Now, there was still the fall, like I spilt the bolts over the floor and, you know, it was a mess. Like, we won't have to deal with that new creation. But, like, that, that is partnering with God. And, and here's the thing. These acts of procreation and vocation for Adam and Eve are not meant to just be some mechanical process. Like, God could have made just babies pop out or like the stork, you know, like we tell our kids, like they just get dropped on the porch. That's not fun. Like, God made the act of procreation fun. And I'm not trying to be weird. Like, seriously, like you're involved with him in that. Even vocation, like when you, at its best, you're like, man, I'm getting paid for this? This is incredible. They're supposed to be done as adoration. There is a commission to worship God with their very being. That's why we don't believe worship just starts when we start singing the first note. No, we commend continuing in worship because all of our life hopefully has been that. And we want that worship to spread to the entire earth. That's why John Piper says missions exist because worship doesn't exist everywhere. There are places that people still are not worshiping God. They're worshiping something. And so we go tell them. We spread that glory. So they're given an abundant provision, a global commission. And then in verses 16 through 17, we see a gracious prohibition. A gracious prohibition. Genesis 1, 16 through 17 says this. And the Lord God commanded the human 
You are free to eat from any tree of the garden. Again, we start with provision, joyous abundance. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Or in that day, you will certainly be condemned to die. We're going to look at this tree in more detail next week when we get to the fall narrative in Genesis chapter 3. But this tree of knowledge of good and evil, I'll explain it more next week. I've explained it in the past. It clearly represents humans trying to achieve the commission that they've been given apart from God. Um, This is not just objectively knowing good and evil. This is them choosing for themselves what is right and wrong, not trusting God's goodness. It's why the serpent starts with, did God really say? And in doing so, we end up separating ourselves from the one who breathed his breath into us, where our life source comes from. Essentially, you can choose life, the tree of life, or choose death, the tree of death, your own way. That's why you will see in the scriptures when humans begin to act on their own and begin to do what is right in their own eyes, they're presented as beastly, as animal-like, because the image of God is not as clearly seen in them. But when those that are presented as surrendering to God, they're often presented as trees of life that flourish. Read Psalm 1, flourish by the water. Like this is riffing on the Genesis narrative. They're given this abundance of opportunity and provision but they're graciously commanded, don't do it. Don't separate yourselves. Trust me for what is right and wrong. Trust me for what will hurt you and what will help you. Don't decide for yourselves because I love you. Like a simple illustration, but like when a dad tells his kid, don't touch the hot stove. Like go play in your room. Here's the play stove. Do whatever you want. Like have fun. Go do everything. But here, don't do this. It will hurt you. God graciously prohibits things that will destroy us. Now, remember to this point, God has only created the human. We're probably reading this story, some of us, and imagining a man and a woman. Right now, we have a human that's, not to be weird, but probably not fully man or fully woman. It's been referred to as the man, which simply means the human. We're reading about this human um, who God has created and been given these, uh, he's been given an abundant provision, he's been given a global commission, They've been given a gracious prohibition, but something's still missing. Look what God says in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the human to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So God says, out of all his good creation, you have this human, but there is one thing that is not tov, not good, not complete. He's called so many things good. He's called things very good. In the first narrative, we did get a picture of man and woman being created. So we're getting a glimpse into how this process happens. And the one thing that is not tov, that is not complete, is that this man is alone. Now, this is not just that he's lonely and needs a companion. He has relationship with God. Um, That's a piece of it, though. He's designed, this human is designed for community and partnership. But there's also a task. There's a commission that has been given that literally cannot be completed without a partner. The one human cannot recreate and join in procreation without another human. Procreation literally needs someone else. Vocation needs a variety of gifts. You aren't all good at the same stuff. Some of you love spreadsheets. Some of you hate them. Adoration. Worship can't happen in isolation. C.S. Lewis explores this. When you see something glorious, it's not even fully experienced until you share it with someone. It's why you, you know, Swifties go and talk with other Swifties about the Taylor Swift concert. 
right? Or you sports fans are just as bad, right? We worship sports. We're like, did you see the game the other day? It was incredible. Went to triple overtime. That was wild. We're sharing in glory together. So I always say, man, I was reading this the other day, and like, God does what? This blows my mind. As Christians, it's what we have together. So, so all of these things require a partner. The human, the Adam, needs a partner. And so you see all these animals being created, right? And this human is joining God and naming the animals, right? God gives him some stewardship, but there's just something off. He's like, that's not a human. All right, nope, definitely not. Like, nope, not there, not there. Like they pass through. There is not a counterpart who can work alongside him. So God creates from the man a woman. And this is where we see the last thing God gives to humanity, which is a mysterious union. A mysterious union. God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep. So this human's put into a deep sleep. You're going to see this pattern in Genesis um, around the idea of covenants will happen. Abraham falls into a deep sleep. Around the idea of unions, um, Jacob, when he falls asleep, he kind of sees heaven and earth, and there's this imagery of heaven and earth kind of being one, this place where God meets man. So this, isn't, this is kind of setting up a pattern for us. But this Adam, he, this human, he, he goes to sleep. So no, 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 he doesn't do anything here. He's asleep. And then God takes, uh, splits the human into two and creates man and woman. Now, the word translated rib is so interesting. Uh, this is wild. Some of you also might not like this, but listen, every other time the word rib is translated in the New Testament, it's side. It is not rib. This is the only place. And still, a lot of people are like, well, why did we translate this rib? Um, and most of the time it's translated side, it has to do with something that has two sides in the vein of construction or forming something. So the Ark of the Covenant, they're told to take one of the two sides, it's the same word here. So most likely the idea here is that one of the two sides of the human is taken and split into two. So this human's kind of split in two. Here's a really bad joke I heard, but the splitting of the atom. There you go. Um, yeah, really bad. Um, so I apologize, but I had to say it. So, so you have this splitting. You can remember this, though, this way. So you have this splitting. It seems to be what's going on here. And, and from this, one human becomes two, right? The forming of man and woman. That's so bad. It's, I'll help you remember, right? I got to move on, though. All right. <laughs> so, so here's what happens. That happens, and then this woman is brought before the man. And so remember, right on the hills of animals coming through. And him naming them. So he's looking at each animal and he's saying, oh, you look like this and I'm going to name you here. What does he say? Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken from man. The first thing Adam recognizes about Eve, which isn't even named yet, but not as her differences, but the sameness. Another human, fully equal before God fully bearing the image of God, the breath of God has breathed into them. And here's what's ironic. Right after being divided, we're told from a commentator's piece here in the, the, the text that they're going to be reunited and become one flesh. So the one become two, and now the two become one. You see what's going on. But here it's done with more joy and agency and freedom. And we're told that this union, this is getting really beautiful. You start getting Trinity with God, the man and the woman, you're getting these glimpses into, into these things, and, and there is no shame at all, even though they're both naked. Every, I think, I've been told every other time, and I think it's true, that nakedness is presented in the scriptures, it's filled with shame. But here, complete union, 
before each other and before God, fully exposed, yet no shame. No need to hide and cover up. Full, just trust, and you are what God wants you to be. Your identity is secure. We're going to look at that shame more next week. But there's something quite mysterious about this relationship. This idea of the word helper. Now, from a privileged position in society, we often refer to the help as a negative term, kind of demeaning. That's not what's going on. Helper here is is more in the line of like, I need help. I need a deliverer. I need someone to help me out because I can't do it on my own. It is this equal partner taken from the man's side to be by his side. And then this idea, he has a a helper is is one sense, but then this language of corresponding to him is how the CSB translates it. It's someone who's almost mirroring, who's similar, but different. Um, A counterpart to him. Uh, One translator took the word partner and counterpart and combined them and said counterpartner. And I think it's great. We're just making up words here. But it's kind of a way to describe this relationship. See, on a micro level, in this mysterious union that we call marriage, we get a glimpse into how God designed it to function. Even in chapter one, you read that God created him uh, male and female, and then he created them male and female. There's a sense in which they are, are two individuals but become one flesh, one man, one woman, somehow two distinct, diverse, separate people, but identical in their humanness. There is both sameness and diversity. That's why we believe that God gets to tell us what marriage is because it tells us something about him. Two separate, diverse entities, yet one flesh. And we get a more full picture of the triune God. The one God who exists in a plurality, distinct persons, father, son, and spirit, yet all equal in their divinity, all united, complete, and perfect. Man and woman each bear their differences, but they're completely equal. In fact, that's what I said the man first recognizes in the woman is her sameness. So if you're not really fat, like grasping all this, it's okay. That's why it's called a mystery. The apostle Paul who wrote a crap ton of scripture, like, could, like called it a mystery, right? Like he, he was taught by God himself, like is what it seems like when he says. There's a mystery here and it's not one of those mysteries you can try to just figure out. But it is a mystery that you're meant to spend a lifetime pondering and allowing it to shape you. The mystery of unions the union of God and man, the union of heaven and earth, the union of man and woman. And later in Ephesians 5, Paul makes quite a jump, it seems like, but he is inspired scripture. And he will explicitly tell us that the whole point of all the mystery of the union of marriage is to point us to a greater mystery, and that is of Christ and the church which is referred to as the bride of Jesus. That's why we're not just hanging out here, guys. There's something crazy going on, and not just in this building, but around the world. See, all of this is pointing us to something greater, all the way from Genesis 2. We're gonna see it next week, but humans don't listen to the prohibition. They seek to to spread God's glory, or actually their own glory, on their own. So guess what doesn't happen? Union. You know what we read? Division between the man and the woman, between humans and God, between the man and the earth, difficulty abounds. And the only time we see union is out of selfishness, Tower of Babel. Yeah, let's unite because we want to overthrow God. We want to become our own God, be our own kings. So yeah, we'll unite for that for a little bit, but it's not sincere unity. It's, It's all a farce. Things take a turn 
for the worse. And instead of God's glory spreading through the entire cosmos, evil spreads. Yet because God does not change, and because God is still good, he refuses to give up on his humanity. And God enters himself in the person of Jesus through a seed of the woman deliverer and pursues and chases his people, his bride. He comes and takes on flesh, dwells, or literally the word is tabernacles, sets up a tent among us in his own body. He's the temple that he says, go ahead, tear it down, and I'll raise it up in three days. And they're like, what? That took 46 years, bro. He's like, I'm talking about my own body. I am the way. It is my blood that will be shed to redeem and sanctify my bride. He allows himself to be crucified, to be placed into the deep sleep of death, to be torn asunder under the weight of God's wrath because he made a covenant with us. And unlike humans, he always keeps his promises. He doesn't fail. That's why this God man, he doesn't stay dead. He doesn't stay in a deep sleep because unlike the first humans, he is not ruled by the serpent. They were told to have dominion over the animals, but in the fall, the serpent has dominion over them and they give into his temptations, but not this fully human, this new and better Adam. That's why Paul calls him the second Adam, that in the first Adam, all die. But in the second Adam, all will be made alive. And he crushes the head of the serpent in his resurrection. He exercises dominion over the prince of the power of the air. That's why you see these wild animals with them when he's facing the temptation of the serpent. This random little nugget you see, I think it's in the gospel of Mark. He's the new and better Adam. He rises from the dust. And as the true resurrected human, he fulfills the commission given to many to spread God's glory to the end of the world. That's why we're told in John 1 that all the glory of the Father is revealed in the face of Christ. And this is the good news. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've screwed it up, you get to play a part based on his work. And here's what's wild, guys. Like this is, I, I might've said this in here, or maybe I was talking to someone else. I've been brought to tears multiple times just studying Genesis 1 and 2 which is the first time in quite a few years that I feel like just reading the scriptures and studying it has really brought me to tears. And it's been over this fact that God chooses to spread his glory through humans, specifically under the new covenant, his church. Because that's wild. I know you. I know how jacked up y'all are. Y'all know how jacked up I am. And we read in Ephesians, Paul says, hey, guess what? I'm going to display my manifold, this diverse wisdom to the powers of the air, to, to not only the things we can see, but the things that are unseen. I'm going to do it through the church. Like there are like beings that we don't understand, angels looking at y'all and being like, oh my gosh, God is amazing. Look at what he did with her. Look at what he did with him. It's crazy. Ephesians 3 and 4 explore this concept. And it talks about how we are all like these various gifts of the body, united together, experiencing the love of God together. We need each other. And it's crazy. 
Like in the same way that God provided for the, the first man and the first woman, this archetypal man and woman. So God provides for his church. It's why you see this new creation language as the church is, is going forth. And what does he say? Wait on the spirit. I got something for you guys. I got everything you're going to need to do the work for you. And he gives us his spirit that makes his home among us. You see this language corporately and individually. And then he empowers the church for what? This commission, new covenant commission, Matthew 28. Our command to be fruitful and multiply is go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. For lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why marriage isn't the ultimate goal, guys. Like, that's a snapshot. It's beautiful. There's a mystery there. It's incredible. We don't want to demean that. But the reality is all of us, married, single, no matter your stage or age, you are called to be a part. That's why the church is most often referred to post-resurrection as a family. It's why we need each other, men and women. It's why we have spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. And biological family is a piece of this, but that's just pointing to a greater reality. And just like Adam needed Eve to accomplish this, men, we need women. They're, they're indispensable to the mission. I say that because typically that's, that can get left behind. Like, go do y'all's thing over here, and we're going to kind of do the real work, right? That, that's not how it works. And it's the same way, too, for women. You need men in your life. That's why we need brothers and sisters on this journey together. It's not just this optional add-on. And God uses us all, our varied and diverse gifts and callings, yet completely unified around the good news of Jesus. Like, I look at you guys, and I know your different political views. Like, I hear them, and I'm like, wait till you two get in a room together. That's going to be fun. But then I've also watched as we get around in our missional community groups and discuss, and like, at the end of the day, we're like, man, you know what? Like, we're all about the gospel. We're all about seeing the glory of God, not our own. This is temporary. There ain't no king or president that's going to fix this mess. We need the king. And that's what, that's what the world will look at and say, I want a piece of that. And that's how worship and glory starts to spread. The same gracious prohibition God gave the man and woman in the garden. We get it. Don't do it alone. Same thing. Abide in me. You can't do anything without me. That's the same prohibition. Don't try to do it on your own. Stay connected to me. Stay connected to the vine, this place of life. Abide in me. And as we grow in our understanding of this mysterious union of Christ and his bride, which you can't just make happen, it's all of grace, but you, we begin by the spirit with community through the scriptures to grow in our understanding of this union. It begins to transform us. It's what Jesus prayed in John 17. He knew it would cost him his life, but he said, Father, I pray that just as me and you are in one, like all of them are in one and they're all one in us. And it's just all this like wrapped up together in this work of Christ. And through this diverse, mysterious union, what does Jesus say in John 17? By this will all men know that you're my disciples, my family, that you love one another. And I know that's a lot. My brain, this was a hard sermon to put together because I'm like, I don't even understand it. It's a mystery. How am I supposed to put it in a manuscript? Tim Mackey with the Bible Project, he often says, hmm, that's worth a long walk and a good cup of tea. And that's why we should meditate on the scriptures probably as much as we read them. A good cup of coffee would be better, by the way. But let's sit and ponder what this means for each of us. To understand that this is ultimately God's work. But we get to play an incredible part as the bride of Christ. 
and he's going to finish the work. That's why, what do you read in Revelation? It's New Jerusalem. You're like, wait, is that a city? Wait, no, it's a bride coming down out of heaven. What's going on there? Oh, presented what? Pure, white, sanctified, no more sin, no more sickness, all gone. It's crazy. There's going to be leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations, a river that goes out from the throne to provide life. God's glory will flood the whole earth like the waters cover the sea. And this is the story that you get to be a part of right now through the everyday stuff of life. Your vocation, when you go to your job, or if your vocation, you don't even get paid and you're like raising kids, whatever. Like you're getting to play a part of that and start that eternity now. When you give to go plant churches among the unreached, you're starting that now. When you read all nations, tribes, and tongues, you're a piece of that. When you work for justice and peace in our community, you're a part of justice flowing from the mountains. When you nurture children in the ways of Jesus, both your own children, biological, adopted, foster children, or your spiritual sons and daughters as you go serve in New Eden kids, and I hear they need some more help back there. So uh, you can thank me later, Jess. Um, But when you do that, spiritual sons and daughters. And I love that, man. There's nothing more that I love. Like when my kids get to see other people sincerely following Jesus, I'm like, yes, praise God for that. Through mutual submission in a marriage, partnering together to display a mysterious picture to the world of Christ and his church. The husband loving the bride like Christ loves his church and the wife submitting faithfully. And, and then we see mutual submission as well. This mysterious picture. I still try to wrap my brain around it and I can't. Through this simple, diverse church, staying unified around the good news of Jesus, holding fast to him, depending on his spirit for every need. That's why we say every week, that's all we have to give you guys. Through the seemingly everyday stuff of life, you get to be a part of displaying to the world the glory of God. And you all can get in on it. No matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, no matter your ethnicity, no matter your social status, you are welcomed into this family based on the work of Christ alone. And no matter what you think, you have something to bring to the table. You're not just dust. The breath of God has been breathed into you. And in Christ, you are made new. So church together, and we abide in Christ. May our union with him become more and more real each and every day. Till one day, we behold him face to face. And we see the glorious beauty united with him forever, for all.